Hey, and welcome again. My name's Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at HDBB, and it's so good to be with you. Today, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Judges, where we're going to look at leadership in a time of unknowns. Now, as Miles reminded us last week, each and every one of us are called to lead. And though that will look different for each of us, Jesus calls us to lead, to influence, to, to serve wherever we are. Now, that can be hard. And it's often hard for one of two reasons. Sometimes it's hard because we look at who we are and we don't always get things right. But as we saw last week, despite our weaknesses, God still uses us. But the other reason is not just who we are, but where we are. That often as we look at the world around us, we can think it's too hard to lead here. And what we're going to see today is that even in the hardest times, God's call remains the same. See, the thing with the book of Judges is that it makes for quite hard reading. It's pretty traumatic in places, if I'm honest. And there have been a few moments when in preparing this talk, to be honest, I think I got the short straw with having to do this reading. But as I've been preparing this, I've been thinking, couldn't we have just picked something a little bit more straightforward? The, the book of Judges records some of the worst behavior in human history. And today's reading, like, it's bad, but it's not even the worst in the book. Like, from here on out, it's a race to the bottom. Judges is basically an ancient version of Breaking Bad, a Shakespearean-level tragedy of idiocy and destruction. But as I've looked at it and spent some time with it, I've come to realize that it's really helpful especially in times like this, it's really helpful to have a story like the book of Judges. See, I don't know about you, but in this season, even simple things like, say, planning for next week feels like, well, it might as well be just rolling the dice. Who knows what might happen? Like, I finished working on this talk on Monday. So far, the strangest thing to happen is Kanye uh, announcing he's running for president. But who knows? I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't the most surprising thing by Sunday. One of the terms that gets used to describe this situation is VUCA, not VERUCA, the thing you get in the swimming pool, but VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And those are words that, as we look at the news, can definitely be used to describe our times. But this is where the book of Judges is so helpful. Like, up to this point, the people of God had real clarity. God spoke. He gave them the law. They followed the cloud of his presence, showing them where to go. It's almost like God was playing a melody, and it was really easy to hear. And there are seasons of life like that. We can sense God's presence is close. We know what to do. Things are going well. But then the people of God, they arrive to where God was leading them. There's the book of Joshua. And then there's the book of Judges, just a cavalcade of carnage. And it's a bit like that melody that was so strong before is now played on a flute. But there are also two rival competing brass bands playing a different song over the top of it. And there's a kid banging a drum and there's a dog barking. And you're trying to listen to all of this over a Zoom call with a bad internet connection. It's really hard to work out what's going on in the book of Judges, to hear God's song. But that's part of the point. Reading the Bible is not just informative, it's formative. It doesn't just tell you what God says, it forms and shapes you into a person who can hear what God says. 
And as you read a story like this, spend some time with it, wrestle with it, it trains us to hear his voice, not just in the easy times, but to distinguish his voice in the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous day-to-day realities of life. So let's have a look at it. This is Judges chapter 11, and it's the story of Jephthah the judge. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Some time later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, um, did, did, didn't you hate me and, give, and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? This is basically that situation where a company fires someone and then realizes they're the only one who knows all the passwords. So they get hired back as a consultant to do the same job for three times the pay. Now the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, ignore that, uh, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answers, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Obviously, he's got trust issues, so he does a little bit of bargaining and secures a better offer. The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. So basically he's back in position, though he's now got more than he originally lost. And at this point, Jephthah shows himself to be more than just muscles. He sends this really skillful message to the enemy king. He doesn't pick a fight. He tries to avoid conflict. It's really diplomatic. And then we read, the king of Amnon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Basically, this is when you write that really long, carefully worded WhatsApp reply, and it's blue tick, no response. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzvah of Gilead, and from there advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give me the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Not a good move. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth and as far as Abel Kamin and subdued Amnon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzvah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was his only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. 
When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I'm not quite sure that's right. I think it's your fault, Jephthah. But you have brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. She said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. Wow. And you're probably thinking, gosh, that's, that, that's pretty rough. At least his story must get better from here, right? Well, no. The story gets even worse. In the next chapter, one of the other tribes come to Jephthah and they're like, hey, you went to fight, but you didn't invite me. Why you never call me one? And he's like, I, I did call you. You didn't respond. I'm going to burn your house down. Not so diplomatic this time. And basically, he, he stops them from coming into the promised land, even though they were part of the... Uh, people uh, of God, and 42,000 people die this way. He leads for six more years, dies, and is buried. It's a pretty tragic story. But this story reflects our times. It's volatile. Decisions are made without considering the consequences. The brothers fire a warrior in a time of war. Jephthah makes a promise without considering the cost. It's an uncertain story. You never quite know what's going to happen. The brothers send him away, only to call him back. Jephthah opens his mouth and it's wise, and other times it's just foolishness. It's a complex story. There are so many moving parts. It's a, a family divided, a tribe divided, a nation divided, and that's supposed to be the good guys. The conflict with their enemy is generational, and the history is so confused that the enemy and Jephthah both describe it differently to how it's recorded elsewhere in the book of Numbers. And finally, it's an ambiguous story. And this is the big one for this reading. We don't actually know what happened to his daughter. The narrator doesn't explicitly say. It's left open-ended. How so? Well, that Hebrew word used for uh, the sacrifice of a burnt offering is the word ascension. And it can mean a sacrifice, but it can also mean ascending to the temple to serve. He may have offered her as a sacrifice or he may have offered her as a servant. We don't know. I mean, it'd be strange for an Israelite to offer a human sacrifice when it's expressly forbidden in the law. But then again, on the other hand, they break every other law. So why not that one? It would seem strange and unconscionable for a father to do this. But then on the other hand, all the Canaanites around him were doing it and society still do it to this day. And the list goes on and it never resolves. It's ambiguous. And I think that is the point the writer is trying to make. There are times when we are unable to discern what's going on. Where we look at the news and we think, I don't know who's right or wrong. I don't even understand what's going on, let alone able to form an opinion, voice it, or act on it. That is the time of the judges. That is the story of Jephthah. And in that, that time, we see that God is still active. 
even in the craziness of the ambiguity, God is still working out his purposes through his people. Even when we are confused, we can still respond to his call. And the warning of this story, well, one of the warnings of this story, but the one I want to focus on today is a fairly simple one. The more you try and hold on to your life, the more you lose it. It's a teaching that Jesus repeats no less than six times in all four Gospels and then demonstrates for us most vividly on the cross that those who try and gain their own life will lose it. But those who lose their life for Jesus' sake will gain it. In times of ambiguity, the human heart will try and rely on itself. It, It does this in two ways, by pushing others down and by raising itself up. And in both of those, neither works. And we see them both in this story. Firstly, the brothers speak to Jephthah as if they don't need him. They push him down and try and hold on and therefore end up with less than they started. They say this, you are not going to get any inheritance in our family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob. To protect their inheritance, to hold on to their power, and they open their mouth against him and drive him away which is a pretty stupid thing to do because he's a warrior and they live in a war zone. He's probably going to be useful. So they have to go back and eat humble pie. Come, they say, be our commander so we can fight. And then he bargains with them and they end up saying, come with us to fight and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. In pushing him down, they end up having to raise him up and in trying to hold on to their life, they lose it. And it's a common trap that the brothers fall into is the trap of thinking that we don't need people who are not like us. That that the world will be fine if everyone else would be a bit more like me at my best. In times of ambiguity, we often look for clarity in ourselves. We, We fall for the lie that to reach our utopia, we're gonna have to leave out everyone who is different to us. But Jesus did not do that. His kingdom is open to everyone. And Jesus and Jephthah are similar in this way. We read that Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels, literally empty men, gathered around him and followed him. Like Jephthah, Jesus is rejected by his people and he builds a team of people that are rejected. But Jesus takes this to the next level because on his team, He has those who are rejected by every different tribe, from every different angle. He has zealots, those who conspire to fight oppression. He has tax collectors, those who collaborate with oppression. He has those who are complicit and try and ignore oppression, hoping it would go away. And he holds all these different tensions in play on his team and refuses to push anyone out. He includes everyone. And that's important in every level of relationship with other people, from the interpersonal to the global. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, speaks about friendship. And he says there's two types of friends that you need. He said there's the first friend. This is the person that you see eye to eye with on virtually everything. You, you agree with each other on everything. You, you know each other so well, you, you can fit each other's, each other's sentences. They're basically 
a carbon copy of you. But he said, just as important is the second friend. The second friend is the one who disagrees with you about everything. They're basically your anti-self. Of course, they share your interests. They read all the right books, but they get to all the wrong conclusions every time. When they speak, it's like they just say the opposite of you. It's like we're speaking the same language, but they mispronounce all the words. You try and correct them and to discover to your surprise that they were about to correct you. And it never seems in the moment that they change or you change but you are changing, but not in the way you expected. We need people who are different from us. It's important at the simplest relational level, but it's just as important on the global level. There's this fascinating book called Why Nations Fail, and it looks at the history of nations and what brings them to their knees. And in the end, their conclusion is fairly simple. They say that the evidence shows that it is not history or geography or resources that determine a nation's prosperity, it's whether or not they include people. Nations that include people grow slowly. Nations that exclude people grow very quickly and then collapse. For society to thrive, everyone needs a seat at the table. And that's true at every level of human relationship, from the one-on-one -on -one to the global. So for us in our day, this is the danger of the so-called cancel culture. As Rick Warren points out, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. The cancel culture basically says, you have no part in our inheritance, no, no place in our utopia, and it never works in the long run. We need each other, and to exclude people is to enter the fight with one arm tied behind our back. Jephthah, having been forced out, returns and ends up in an even greater position. And this is a picture of how God treats us. He makes a way back and he invites us in, not to come and be just a servant, but to come and be his friend. Not to serve by, but to have a seat at his table. If you hold on to your life, you lose it. But if you give it away for his sake, you gain it. The second way we see things go wrong is by looking at Jephthah. Jephthah tries to bargain with God. And in doing so, he's trying to hold on to his life by raising himself up. Whereas the brothers push him down and speak to him as if they don't need him, Jephthah speaks to God as if God does need him. It's a case of looking for the right thing in all the wrong places. See, the bargain, like in trying to bargain with God, he's basically saying, look, look, God, it's great that you're involved and I'm really pleased you're on my side. But look, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We read, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If, if you give, if you do this, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And this backfires spectacularly. 
kind of obviously, in trying to secure his inheritance and his legacy, he cuts him off from himself off from his inheritance and his legacy because he either sacrifices his daughter as an offering or as we saw earlier, he sends her to the temple as a servant, in which case she remains unmarried. He has no other children, so he ends up with no descendants. Either way, in trying to gain his life, he loses it. In trying to attain his legacy rather than just receiving it, he ends up letting go of it. Now, this is foolish, uh, and you can see from the response, but it, it was foolish even before we saw the outcome. God does not need us. Sorry to break that to you. He does not need us. Any ability we do have came from him in the first place. And any ability we do have is nothing compared to his ability. He does not need us, but he delights to use us. And he delights to use us because he has good things for us. God has made it clear look, that he wants this for Jephthah. Jephthah has got the promise of God's word. He's got the potential of God's gifting. He's got the power of God's spirit. And yet, even with all that, he's not convinced that God is for him. And so he tries to bargain with him. Jephthah interacts with God as he had interacted with his brothers. Often we, we make that mistake of thinking other people's bad treatment of us is the way God will treat us. Do you know what? He's not trying to shortchange us. Do you know what? He doesn't need our shortchange. He's, he's kind of got a lot of stuff. And in bargaining with God, you always end up with less because you start to believe that the outcome was somehow dependent on us that the outcome was dependent on our goodness and our ability. And the problem is that what you gain by striving, you sustain by striving. And so eventually it cuts us off from the gift that he wanted to give us. God wants to give us good gifts. And I'm not saying that we're not involved. We are because he delights to use us and we have to position ourselves to receive his blessings. If God says, I want to bless you in this place, then we need to stand in this place in order to receive his blessing. Our obedience doesn't cause the blessing, but it positions us to receive it. There is something in this story in the fact that it's once Jephthah has stepped into the role the Lord has called him, it's then that the Spirit comes and empowers him for it. There is a step of faith. But in his heart, Jephthah still thinks that this is all dependent on him. That's why he fulfills the vow. You know, he didn't need to fulfill the vow. Even like God's law gives a way of exiting a vow. God's law is very clear that this vow is wrong and God's law gets broken by him in pretty much every other way. So why not this way? Why not? Because of his pride. Ultimately, he thinks this is about him and so he carries it out. In his relationship with us, God is not volatile, uncertain, complex or ambiguous. He died for you. The Son of God loved you and he gave himself for you. And that changes how we speak to him. It changes how we pray. Look, look, if we truly believe that God has made right with us, that we're in a right relationship with him, then that means something when God says that he will give you the desires of your heart. He didn't give you the desires of your heart so he could frustrate them. 
He's not like that. And so it means it is good to pray directly. It is good to pray, Lord, I really need this breakthrough in this relationship because I'm tired of going round and round in circles. I need this to change today. It means it's good to pray, Lord, I really want a job this week. I'm tired of having to hunt and I'm putting on a tie for a Zoom interview. It means it's good to pray, Lord, we really want to make it this month. We don't want to go through another month of waiting and disappointment. Lord, make it happen. We're invited to pray like this and to urgently expect him to answer. Because here's the thing. When we pray like this and that prayer is answered, then you will give him praise. You will give him thanks. You will give God the glory and your relationship with your father in heaven will be cemented by the gift that was not bargained for and was not bought, but was given to you free of charge. And if he says no, you'll be persuaded immediately that it is because he has something else and that because he loves you, his delays are not denials. I want to push this further. Look, Jesus says to his disciples, look, if your child comes to you and asks for an egg, you don't give them a scorpion. Like, and if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? God is not out to trick you. If you ask for an egg, he's going to give you an egg. He's not going to give you a scorpion, although he does know which of the eggs have gone off. And so sometimes we think we're asking for an egg, but actually it's a scorpion because the egg's gone off. But, but you know what? If we knew all that God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. None of us are going to be in heaven and feeling like we missed out. He is no man's debtor, but we aren't there yet. And so in the meantime, be direct with your father in heaven. Be honest with your father in heaven. You do not need to bargain. Look, let, let me push this again because it's, it's important. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You see that so vividly in the Jephthah story. His words cut him off from what God wants for him. In Romans, there is this amazing promise about God's provision. Now, what it does not say is having not withheld his own son, how much more can you really ask for? So stop asking you ungrateful lot and be happy. That's, that's the D-I-V, the Dan's internal version. No, what it says is this, he who did not withhold even his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he gave you his son, what's anything else? To him. Like everything else is small change compared to the riches of Christ that he has given us. You don't have to bargain with him in prayer. Now, there are two occasions that in the Bible that, that possibly come close to this, but aren't quite. One is in Malachi and it's about money. God says, you can test me when it comes to money. He says, look, be generous, give to me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store all of it. He says, look, you can come on an adventure of generosity and learn that you can't outgive me. That, that kind of comes close. And the other is this. And to be fair, it is a trade. So you could think of it as a bargain. In Isaiah, we read this. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become 
like wool. The only thing he wants to take from you to trade with you is your sin. In exchange, he wants to give you forgiveness and he wants to give you freedom. That is the only trade, that is the only bargain that Jesus is interested in. See, unlike Jephthah, he doesn't offer another's life, he offers his own life. Jesus ascends to Jerusalem where he gives his life for us. And do you know what? It doesn't matter how messy your life is, how scarlet your sin is, how volatile, uncertain, complex, or ambiguous you have been towards Jesus. The amazing thing is that even in the midst of this story, you get a glimpse of God's salvation work. The leaders and the land in the book of Judges are a picture of our lives, divided, often messy, and yet loved. You are loved. God is present and he is at work. And you even hear the whispers of Jesus's song in this story. That like Jesus, Jephthah is born to a woman of poor reputation. He's rejected by his brothers. He gathers outsiders, is filled with God's spirit and leads his people to victory. Jephthah, despite his best efforts, is still used by God. And as confusing as the story of Judges is, it's nothing compared to the confusion that reigned on that Easter weekend, where it looked like God's song seemed to be drowned out once and for all. But then it was death that got drowned out. And it was not confusion, but the good news of Jesus that had the last word and rang out across the world. And so now Jesus stands as the true judge, who is able to give us permission to pass from death into life. Permission based not on what we can do for him, but based on what he has done for us. Amen. Why don't we stand? And uh, as I was preparing this, I had a sense that there there might be some people watching. And um, I, I think in the past, possibly before you became a Christian, you made a vow to God. And it was a vow that he never asked you to make and actually doesn't really line up with his word. And I think he wants you to know today that he doesn't hold you to that. Because of the cross, you can be freed from the things that we have bound ourselves in that he doesn't want us to be bound in. So so as we pray, just offer that to him now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to set us free that you don't need us, but you delight to use us. And we ask now that Jesus, as we give you everything that holds us back, all of our sin, though they be like scarlet, we ask that we would know today afresh that you have forgiven us. You have washed us clean. You have set us free. Amen. 